One of my favorite stories that Bob Russell told probably 18 years ago in a sermon uh, was about a preacher got up one Sunday morning and he brought an Irish setter on stage with him. It wasn't his dog. He said it was a youth minister's dog, and the youth minister loved this dog, and the dog loved the youth minister. But that morning, the preacher just came up alone with the dog, and he said he rolled a ball across the stage, and he said, fetch, Josh, fetch. But the dog wouldn't budge. He wouldn't obey a religious leader. So the preacher called up on a friend of his who was a bodybuilder and a weightlifter, huge guy, and he snarled at the dog, and he said, fetch, Josh, fetch. But the dog wouldn't fetch for power. On cue, the banker friend of the pastor came up on stage, pulled out a wad of cash, and flipped it in front of the dog's face, and he said, fetch, Josh, fetch, but the dog wouldn't fetch for money. So the preacher said, okay, congregation, uh, we're going to put some pressure on this dog. On the count of three, everybody stand up and yell, fetch, Josh, fetch. So uh, everybody stood up and yelled to the dog, fetch, but the dog wouldn't fetch for peer pressure. Then this beautiful young woman came on stage, auburn hair, almost the same color as the dog's, and she said in a very sultry, soft voice, Josh, would you please fetch the ball for me? Preacher said he had to admit the dog did twitch a little at that point, but he still wouldn't budge. He wouldn't even fetch for the wiles of a woman. And finally, the youth minister came on stage, and he simply said, Josh, go get the ball. And he ran across, got the ball, brought it back, and dropped it at his feet. When everybody sat down and got settled in, the preacher then asked this question, who are you fetching for? Who are you fetching for? And I thought, man, oh man, what a great illustration that is, and what a grand question to be asking everybody the week after Easter. And so I'm going to ask you, family, who are you fetching for? Who's the Lord of your life? The Living Bible paraphrases Romans 6.16 like this, don't you realize that you choose your own master? You can choose sin with death or else obedience with acquittal. But the one whom you offer yourself will take you and be your master, and you'll be his slave. So the point is, every one of his family is fetching for somebody or somebody. The question is, who is that? Somebody's the master in your life that's dictating your behavior and your destiny. So who are you fetching for? Power? Prestige? Money? Pleasure? Some uh, personal goal? Selfish goal? The Apostle Paul makes it clear that only Jesus Christ deserves to be the Lord of our life. Only Jesus Christ is worthy of us fetching for. And after the Easter sermon last week and the Easter message, we know that's right. Well, our text this morning is Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 through 23. And I know you're sitting at home with the family right now with your Bibles open. My goodness, I'd love to hug on your family. And when we finally open this church back up and we start hugging, you better spend, uh, count on some time because I'm going to be hugging for a while. But for this morning, if you just open up the text and read with me, I think we're going to see that Jesus merits our willingness to have him not just our Savior on Easter Sunday morning, but the Lord of our lives every day. Number one, he rules with full authority and at the same time still identifies with our humanity and our weaknesses. That's so awesome. You know, most respected leaders in the world have always had this balance between authority and identity. Most of you remember Rudy Giuliani, who was the mayor of New York years ago. I mean, that guy was so popular, they tried to change the law so they could elect him for a third term. He was a powerful leader. He cleaned up New York City for the first time in decades, and it became a safe place. And then when the world towers fell, he was right down there in the trenches for weeks with the people. And so he was a strong leader, but the New Yorkers felt like he identified with them because he was one of them. 
And the most effective leaders not only have respect for the people, but they have an understanding of the people. But they have to be real. People won't follow somebody who's phony. People want a leader who have authority and at the same time can identify with them. They, they want integrity and they want uh, cleverness and they want worthiness and credibility and a sense of control. And, and we want that in our leaders uh, from parenthood all the way to presidency. But it's just tough to pull off. The truth is only Jesus Christ has a perfect balance between the highest qualifications of power and the deepest understanding of people. Look at verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Well, the two key words there, first of all, uh, deity, which means uh, he is God, and then bodily, which means he's man. He's the perfect God-man Jesus was. He had full authority. Jesus has authority over every family, every church, every government, every organization, all the media. Now, I know some of them don't acknowledge that now, but they will one day, trust me. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So he has full authority, but Jesus also understands the needs and the desires and the wants of people. Remember, he was like us. He was born of a very despised people in a very humble town. He worked 30 years as a carpenter. He got calluses on his hands and had to put up with stubborn customers. Had to eke out a living. He, he suffered constant criticism from his enemies. Was betrayed by a close friend. He knew what police brutality was for sure. He had to endure disrespect, humiliation, and the most uh, painful death ever. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, You know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through, even though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And man, are we rich. Jesus Christ is the perfect balance that we had ever wanted a leader. He has awesome authority and a man of perfect humility. Dr. Robert Feith tells a story about when he was in World War II and he was marching through Europe with his battalion and they had to hold up one night in a, in a barn in France. and It was Christmas Eve. He said it was freezing cold. He said he remembered feeling sorry for himself. He said, Feith, you've got to be the loneliest creature on the planet right now, miles from home, freezing in this barn. And he said then it hit him that the very first Christmas Eve, Jesus Christ was born in a cold stable and he was miles and miles from his father's house. He said, you can't believe uh, the uh, encouragement that gave me and, and the comfort that gave me to know that Jesus Christ understood what I was going through. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 15 says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just like we are, and yet is without sin. Jesus merits being our master because he has divine authority over everything and yet still identifies with our humanity. He's amazing. Number two, he rules with tender mercy, but he still has the power over all of our enemies. It's, it's a rare thing indeed to find a leader who has a balance between being tough and tender. No, most leaders gravitate towards one or the other, and we gripe about it all the time. We don't like this president because he's too harsh. We didn't like the last president because he's too soft. We don't like our current basketball coach because he's too hard on the kids. We didn't like our previous basketball coach because he was too soft and a disciplinarian. We don't like this preacher because he's too strict. We don't like that preacher because he's too lenient. It's hard to find the balance. One of the reasons why President George W. Bush had the highest approval rating of any president in the history of the United States is because he had this balance between being a tough guy and being so tender. 
when the towers went down, he was tough. He spoke tough and he acted tough. But he also had this tender side. Remember when the Taliban took all those people hostages and he sent planes over there and dropped food for everybody? And we just love a leader who have mercy and at the same time are strong and provide defense against our adversaries. I was thinking this past week, uh, we have that right here at home with our IU head football coach, Tom Allen. You talk about a perfect balance. Here's a very tough, high-spirited coach. If you've ever seen him, he's awesome to watch on the one hand and then very gentle, loving man of Christ on the other. It's awesome to see that. That's why the kids and the staff love him. That's why the people love him. That's why this church loves him so much. I love his titles. He goes by the title of the ambassador of, the servant of, the pastor of Jesus Christ disguised as a football coach. I love that Tracy. So I paraphrase what Tracy calls him. Angie and I got to go into the locker room at the end of a, the Northwestern game last year. It's the game in which they became bowl eligible. And it was so amazing to watch because we got in there about five minutes before the game was over. And to watch him on the field, he demanded that this kid did this and this coach did that. And he had full authority of what was going on on the field. And then when he came in the locker room, the kids' eyes just lit up. It was him, and they applauded and cheered. And he came over to them, and they all went down on their knees. And he led them in prayer, and you could hear a pen drop. And then when the prayer was over, they stood up and sang the fight song. Very moving thing to watch a man with that much authority and still that tenderness that he has from following Jesus Christ. Romans eleven twenty seven speaks of the kindness and the sternness of God. And Jesus being God in the flesh is very tough, but he's also very tender. Listen, the tender mercies of Jesus are legendary. We preach about them all the time. But we also know Jesus could be very tough. He drove out the uh, money changers in the temple. If people are exploited or God's words misrepresented, he goes off. He drove the demons out of the demoniac. He, he called out the religious leaders in public, humiliated them, called them white-washed tombs and, and dirty cups and hypocrites and serpents. One time when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue on a Sabbath, he noticed a woman who was hunchback. She'd been unable to stand up straight for 18 years because of a back issue. So he called her up on stage and healed her, and she was exuberant, as you can imagine. But the ruler of the synagogue was indignant. He shook his finger at Jesus and said, six days a week you should do healing, but not on the Sabbath. Jesus said, you're a hypocrite. You untie your donkey on the Sabbath and lead it to water. Shouldn't I untie this woman who's been bound by Satan for 18 years and release her? Verse 17 says, when he said this, all of his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Family, it's clear Jesus merits our total allegiance because even though he's full of mercy, he has the power to conquer all of our enemies. Look at verse 11. In him, you are also circumcised and the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. See, Jesus defeats our sinful nature too, and that's good because all of us have dueling natures, don't we? I was just getting to the point in my life where I could do a little Facebook. You know, Travis State's been pushing me, so I even posted online a couple weeks ago uh, Angie's Facebook page, but at least I was moving in that direction. But then last week, to my horror, I saw Dennis Duncan post on Facebook singing, no, butchering Sweet Caroline. I texted him and told him that Neil Diamond had a hit out after him, and if he missed it, was, it, it fell to me. And if I missed Sweet Caroline was coming after him. 
Listen, having dual natures is who we are, halos and thorns. You know, and sometimes we want to do the right thing and we want to love people. And then there's times we want to gravitate to evil and not like people. But Jesus not only forgives our past, he helps us get rid of that evil nature. He performs a, a spiritual surgery on us. Circumcision was a physical surgery that marked people to be known as Jews, descendants of Abraham, a distinctive people. Baptism is our spiritual surgery that marks us as distinctive people in Jesus Christ. And when we're baptized in him, it changes everything. I always loved uh, Paul Harvey, news commentator. I loved listening to him. Some of you probably remember him. Uh, and I loved one time he described his baptism. He said this. He said, the preacher has said there's nothing magic in the water. Yet as I descended into its depths and rose again, I knew something life-changing had just happened to me, a, a cleansing inside out. No longer did there seem to be two uncertain, contradictory Paul Harveys. No, just one immensely happy one. I felt a fulfilling surge of the Holy Spirit, and afterwards I cried like a baby. A kind of relief, I suppose. And this shows that this simple act has made in my life uh, something so immense as to be indescribable. Since totally submitting to, to him through the symbol of water baptism, my heart can't stop singing. I've taken off a lifelong habit of fretting over the small things, and also perhaps because baptism is such a public act and because one's dignity becomes as drenched as one's body, I've discovered a brand new unselfish consciousness in talking about my beliefs. That's us. When we come to Jesus Christ and are baptized in him, he destroys the sinful nature in us, and we become brand new. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, all things become new. Jesus defeats our spiritual deadness as well. My sister Candy taught preschool in uh, Christian preschool in Louisville for years, and I love the story she told about four-year-old Josh. I'll call him Josh. I forget his name. But she was telling them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and she said the whole time, this little Kentuckian boy, which makes a difference when you hear his accent, is just sitting in his chair with his arms crossed, shaking his head. And when she was done, she said, Josh, don't you believe me? He said, no, Miss Decca, I don't. And she said, why not? He said, because when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. Well, Josh, I want to tell you, that's not quite true when it comes to Jesus Christ. Verse 13 says, when you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Notice, he didn't say when you were spiritually sick. He said when you were spiritually dead. When you're spiritually dead, you don't respond at all to Jesus Christ. When you're spiritually dead, you don't respond at all to spiritual stimulus. But when you become alive in Jesus Christ, everything changes. Some of you in this family right here, as recent as four or five years ago, were dead to spiritual things. You, you didn't like worship. You, you didn't like singing. You didn't like praying. You didn't like the preaching. It bored you. You only came because you had to, because your spouse made you come or your folks made you come. But then Jesus Christ got a hold of you, and you become alive, and now you love to worship, and you love to read the Bible. And when I'm preaching and I'm done, you think, preach a little longer, preacher. Well, maybe you're not that quite alive yet. But Jesus lights things up in our life. And I'll tell you something else he defeated. Jesus defeated the legalism of the Old Testament, which is a wonderful thing. Verse 14, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. See, there's a sense in which the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments were against us, opposed to us, because they set a standard of regulations that you and I could never uh, adhere to. It, it was a, 
a, a diagnosis of our sin, which was deadly, and we couldn't do anything about it. But Jesus nailed it to the cross. He canceled the code and fulfilled the code. It's amazing what he did. And there are two interesting words in verse 14. The first one is the word for written code. It was used by a debtor as an IOU. And then the second one is the word for canceled, which means blotted out or wiped out. In that day, uh, ink didn't have any acid in it. And so when the scribe would write on the papyrus, it, it would sit there until it would stain and finally soak in. And so it was a period of time where if the scribe wanted to make a change, he could just take a wet sponge or, or a wet rag and wipe it clean, kind of like we do a whiteboard today. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's not only wiped out our sins, he's blotted out the Old Testament regulations, which you and I couldn't adhere to anyway. So now our salvation does not depend on following the rules, praise God. It depends on the grace of Jesus Christ because he defeated the legalism of the Old Testament. Jesus defeats our spiritual enemies too. Satan and all of his demons, look at verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. Now the Bible reminds us several times that our enemy is not flesh and blood. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the prince of the power of the darkness. So for Christians... Our public enemy, number one, has never been John Dillinger or Osama bin Laden or El Chapman Guzman. It's always been Satan. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross, it appeared like he'd been defeated. But God just did what God always does. He made something bad into something good. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross, it became uh, an instrument of forgiveness of all of our sins. And when he rose from the dead, it became a symbol of the hope of all mankind. Make no mistake about it, family. I know Satan's alive and well and doing a lot of damage. But he has been completely defeated and humiliated by the cross of Jesus Christ. Satan's like a football player with two minutes to go in the game down 60 to nothing. He knows he has no hope of winning. So he just does what he can do, causing fights and frustrations and chaos. But it's futile because he's been completely defeated by Jesus. Revelation 12, 12 says that Satan is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Now, the Bible says the last enemy that Jesus will defeat is death. Verse 12, you have faith in the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Man, we need to hear that. If you've ever sat at the bedside of a loved one and watched them waste away, then you know how brutal an enemy death can be. But if you've ever sat at the bedside of a saint like Pat Kane, who knew that she knew that she knew that Jesus had died for her sins and was coming to get her any minute, then you can sing with Paul, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? I got one more real quick, and now I'm going to finish. He rules with divine principles, but he still gives us freedom. This is real amazing. Every time we elect a new politician, they promise uh, to free us up, free us from taxes and regulations. And as soon as we elect them, they raise our taxes and they raise our regulations. It's not that way with Jesus Christ. The closer you get to him, the more devoted you get to him, the, f the more fully you spend time with him, the freer you become. And it's not the kind of freedom that causes us to have a license to do anything we want to do. That leads to chaos. It's just the opposite. It frees us up to do his will, which causes us to be rich. That's why John chapter 8, verse 32 says, You'll know the truth, Jesus Christ, and the truth will set you free. I was so glad when they got our little section of 69 finished because it gets the Canes and the Petersons and the Millers to Disney World that much quicker. 
Oh, excuse me, Disney World. But anyway, we're so glad to get that, that section finished. But you know, we got to follow the rules. I mean, you've seen the signs. No, unauthor, uh, no unauthorized vehicles, no uh, unmotorized vehicles, no bicycles, no stopping, no hitchhiking. And my point is, if we don't follow the rules, I mean, if we just get our golf carts up there and, you know, our four-wheelers and our bicycles and we pull off anytime we want to and have a picnic on the side of the road, we're going to have chaos and it's going to be unsafe and it's going to slow everything down. But when the rules are followed, Interstate 69 enables us to get to our destination faster and safer. And that's why sometimes we call it a freeway. It's the same thing with Jesus. Following Jesus doesn't mean there aren't any guidelines. There are. But it means that his guidelines are reasonable and liberating and always right and good for us. And Paul says you've got to be careful with that because if you, put anything, if you add anything to that, it can mess things up. Look what he says in verse 16. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus Christ. It's just true. There will always be believers who will judge us by their own standards, and they'll add things on. You should always fast two weeks before Easter. You, you should never go to the Indianapolis 500. They run that on Sunday. You can only take communion on Sunday mornings. Paul says when people add regulations and rules like that, don't pay any attention to them. Don't be intimidated by them. He says in verse 18, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Paul says sometimes these legalistic people have spent so much time in church, and they do so much Bible stuff that they seem like they know what they're talking about, and they start telling you all the things you should do and shouldn't do. And Paul says if you're not careful, they'll lead you right back into Old Testament law. Also, they've lost their connection with Jesus. Since you died with Christ, verse 20, to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations and deeds have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What Paul's saying is we want to avoid the temptation to add anything to what Jesus has told us to do. When I was a kid, we were told these are just the rules, regulations, straight out of the word. You can't run in the church building. Men can't have long hair. You shouldn't play cards. People think you're gambling. You can't play sports on Sunday. Today, it's new rules. The rules today is you can't watch any R-rated movies. That might not be a bad thing, but it's not in the Bible. You, you shouldn't stay at Marriott because they run by a cult. I don't know if you knew that or not. Shouldn't be involved with AT&T because they support perversion. And at Canes, I can't believe they go to Disney World. They have a gay pride day down there. Now, sometimes it's wise to follow these instructions for the benefit of others. But what Paul's saying is, don't make that a test of fellowship, a test of spirituality. Listen, several I'm almost done. Here's a good thing about me going long is you can go get a piece of toast or something. But anyway... Years ago, uh, I went and played some golf with some people from church, not this church. And about the third hole, their preacher lit up a big cigar. Now, is that okay? Would, would you be offended if you saw Mark Huddleston walking around with a big cigar? That little boy can't smoke a big cigar. But you know what I'm talking about. Listen, it doesn't say anything at all in the Bible about smoking a cigar. Now, I have to be careful about that because, you know, my nicotine thing years ago. But I wasn't going to hold that against him. I mean, I eat too much sugar and fat and cholesterol. I don't want him judging me for that. So I didn't make it a test of fellowship with his Christianity or his leadership. 
Because it doesn't say anything about the Bible. He can smoke a cigar if he wants to. It's just stupid and stinks. But all kinds of spiritual legalism creeps into our lives if we're not careful. Two quick stories. Craig Jackson was telling me when his aunt and uncle moved to Arkansas for the first time, they were looking for a church. And they walked into this church service, big church, and he had on jeans and a nice shirt, and his wife had on some dress slacks and a blouse. They were greeted at the door, but they weren't welcomed. The greeter said to them, the casual service is at 11. They found another church. You see what I'm talking about? I'm sure there's lots of spiritually good Christian people in that church, but they were so dedicated to their rules of dress code that they were turning people off. We have to be careful with this. One more and I'm done. I goofed up personally big time about this years ago with a brother in Christ that I love dearly. It's the practice here at South Union Christian Church, mainly because of me, for the last 32 years, that if you come on staff here or you become an elder at South Union, we ask that you completely abstain from alcohol. Now, I can't impose that on the church. It's not biblical. I wish I could because in the 35 years I've been in ministry, I could tell you some very, very terrible stories about alcohol, and it's getting worse. I can't tell you one good story about alcohol, but I still can't preach abstinence, so we don't do that to our people, and we don't do it for our deacons, but we've asked the staff and elders to abstain from alcohol so we can live above even the appearance of evil. Several years ago, this friend of mine, who's a godly man, powerful man of God, uh, I was telling him that I couldn't share pulpit with people who drank because that was my rule. And he said, well, that's not right. You're imposing regulations and rules that Jesus didn't impose. I had to pray about that for several months and think it over. Turns out he was right and I was wrong. I hate it when that happens. But this is what Paul says in Galatians 5.1. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't let your freedom, uh, don't be burned again by a yoke of slavery, but don't use your freedom to cause somebody else to stumble. We're free in Christ, but we've got to watch out for each other. I'm free, for example, to sit at this table every Sunday with a UK jacket on, a UK tie, and preach. I'm free to do that if I want to. I wouldn't because it would offend 90% of the people here and wouldn't make me want to throw up. But I'm free to do that. We're free in Christ, but we've got to be careful. I'm going to close with this quote, and then we're going to take communion from Seth Erickson. I love this he said one time, freedom is like a tree planted by the water. Uprooted, it's free only to die. To remain free, it must remain attached to that which is giving life. Which reminds me of my favorite passage in the scripture, John 15, 5. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branch. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will produce much fruit. So family, we're going to take communion together again. That's wonderful to get to do that. And we're going to celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ fresh on our mind from Easter Sunday. It should be every Sunday, but it's definitely fresh on our minds right now. So before we do, I want to ask, uh, who's the Lord of your life? If he's not the Lord of your life, do something about it today. Remember, Paul said, you get to choose your master. You can choose sin and death or Christ and acquittal. Why not choose acquittal? Three two seven six five four nine. Man, let's do this thing. The rest of us, family, as you talk this morning with your family and pray with them over this communion, ask each other right now before you take communion, family, who are we fetching for? Who's the Lord of this house? Are we trying to get a bigger house, a nicer car, a bigger camper, and more vacations? Or are we chasing the things of Jesus Christ? Lord Jesus, you are the Lord and master of our lives. We, we speak that and we know that and we want it deep in our hearts. 
through the mighty, powerful name of Jesus. We're inviting the Holy Spirit in our hearts right now to give us the wisdom and the strength and the power to live lives worthy of Christ, not just being our Savior, but our Lord. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.